Hi, Reem. Thank you so much for taking out the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? So I grew up in a very small suburb right outside of Boston in New England. (laughs) And um, growing up, my childhood, like my first food memories are actually the stories of the food that I grew up versus the memories of food, there's like a complete dissonance between the two. I remember sort of growing up and eating uh, macaroni and cheese from the box and ramen, instant ramen. Um, We were latchkey kids. So that was like our comfort food. Um, But we also had sort of an eclectic mix of Arab food. Um, My mom uh, always tried to find ways to take sort of uh, American classics and Arabify them, as we would say. Uh, so we had, you know, our spaghetti and meatballs were more like kufta and meatballs with the red sauce um, that was spiked with our seven spice mix. So, yeah, just a hodgepodge of sort of traditional Arab foods, but with a lot of sort of Americana cuisine trickled in between. How did you make your way into cooking, into professionally cooking? (laughs) Uh, Sort of a roundabout way, I would say. Uh, I never imagined that I was going to be a professional cook, per se. I I was sort of prior to my culinary career, I was, uh, I spent a lot of time in the uh, nonprofit sector. I was doing... um, you know, work around uh, the, you know, the issues that really mattered to me here in, uh, in in the Bay Area, which I've, you know, been lucky to call home for the last 18 years. Um, issues with like affordable housing and living wages for workers and community benefits for residents. And that work was really amazing. Um, you know, I was part of campaigns that won some real tangible uh things for the communities that I was working with. But I think that um, my work as a professional community and labor organizer wasn't sort of getting the transformative uh, Mm -hmm. piece of organizing that I was really yearning for, that sort of taking time and transformation of people and their leadership. Um, It was just too... it was it's too unstable like the nonprofit sector just basically was like reliant on the funding we would get and one one you know one month i'd be working in one community and sort of building up towards a campaign and the next minute like the the priorities of our funders would change and we have to move and i was like i don't want to do this anymore i really want to build deep um with the communities i was working with and um, I also noticed that like the communities I was working with and, and, and the things that we were fighting for, um, it was just like, we're losing our ability to imagine, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, what actually is the world that we want to live in. And that made me really sad. Um, and so I really, I was burnt out at a certain point and, um, went on a trip, uh, to kind of just deal with the burnout. So it was really like a selfish thing mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, and when I was burnt out, I was really turning towards um, baking. Baking was 
the sort of my 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 place and and I had like sort of been an amateur baker throughout the years like um California is really where I learned how to work with ingredients how to learn you know all these things and it was really sort of a healing place for me but it was personal right wasn't like oh I'm gonna like pursue a career in baking but then when I took a trip in 2010 sort of out of burnout back to the homeland it was there where I kind of like everything sort of came together for me it was like seeing these spaces I'm like these are the kind of spaces I was yearning for like this like deep connection to my culture that I didn't have like I my you know I had been to Syria Lebanon Palestine over the course of my childhood but you know, I was a kid from America and I didn't have the memories in that homeland that my parents did. And so it was always sort of a strange um, feeling <laughs> going back home. But it was this last trip and it's, it has actually been the last trip that I've taken there since. Um, you know, the food spaces is where I really felt connected and I really the sort of gift of Arab hospitality and Arab bread making and a way to think about the lifeline of Arab history and all that we bring. And I was like, the U.S. needs to know about this. So it became sort of just like a mission. <laughs> and I came back and I was, um, I quit my job um, and I enrolled myself into a culinary program um, at lo my local community college that had baking and pastry two-year program and uh I scared the crap out of my parents and uh mm -hmm. and there it is I be, I was like I'm gonna be a baker because I want to create this so I always sort of had a mission that sort of pursuing a culinary career was a means a means mm -hmm. to this end you know which was much bigger than just like I want to learn how to bake but I knew that if I was gonna create this bakery had to be the best bakery, you know, and <laughs> I, I needed to show the truest reflection of what I saw um, when mm -hmm. I went to Syria and when I went to Lebanon. Um, and so I spent, you know, really 10 years doing that or seven years doing that before I opened my bakery. Um, and I'm feel super fortunate to have done it in a shorter amount of time because the food world is not kind <laughs> working in kitchens is not yeah. great um and I got to learn you know what is it that I want to do and what is it that I don't want to do and yeah so yeah my entry into the food world is really sort of a roundabout way it wasn't my love for food but my love for community that sort of brought me in Right. And how ha did your work as a laborer and community organizer influence the way that you run your restaurants? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, as somebody who is like self-proclaimed anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. <laughs> to suddenly open my own bakery and become the quote-unquote boss, uh, that was a huge contradiction. Um, and I grappled with it for a long time. I mean, you know, I spent, prior to that, spent like you know, spent my time in underground campaigns to help workers sort of deliver their letter to the boss. And mm -hmm. now, you know, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to be different. You know, I'm going to, um, and in many ways, I think, you know, my, my labor organizing, like seeing my workers as sort of leaders and how do I build a team um, that builds the leadership of 
of these workers to be more than just workers, right? Like I don't see my team as just like cooks or front of house or, you know, any of these things. And so I think sort of um, having that experience of um, building leadership in workers as sort of nuts and bolts organizing skills uh, really did help me in my leadership style. You know, I right out of culinary school, I, w- I was really lucky enough to get a job at um, a pretty renowned uh, bakery uh, and pizzeria cooperative called Arizmendi. And so I learned what sort of participatory management um, and leadership looks like mm-hmm. in a way that I think I wouldn't have if I, you know, just reading about co-ops. And so I think all of those things really helped me. Um, build empathy. I mean, it's not easy to be a small business owner. And I was constantly at odds with sort of the, um, the constraints of like running a food business with sort of my recognition that um, from like a worker's right standpoint is that these things have to be in place. And so it didn't make me necessarily the most profitable business in the beginning, but it was a long-term investment um, that I knew that I was going to build my my model around sort of having a high labor line and then really investing in my workers, um, not just in wages and benefits, but also uh, in time, you know, mm-hmm. like we would have staff meetings and we would pay people for their time to sort of go above and beyond. Um, and that turned out to be really good for us. You know, we have a pretty good retention rate at Reams. And I want to say the biggest moment, and uh, and and I talk about this in um, the piece with Tunde that um, you mentioned, uh, that like my workers delivered a letter to me <laughs> in the midst of the pandemic, and of course, like as as the quote unquote boss, I could have been really scared and threatened and like take it personally, like how do don't they know what I'm going through? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and instead, I was really proud. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was like, okay, go, you know, like this is you stepping into your power and asking for transparency. And yeah, you know, this is a chance for me to kind of really, you know, check my own contradictions and sort of the role of power that I play. So yeah, it's a lot of contradictions and a lot of things that I grappled with, but I think Mm -hmm. above all my, my, my world and community and labor organizing, um, really helped me be a better leader. And that's kind of how I think of myself at Reams. Um, And I'm still learning, you know. Um, But it definitely informed the way that I structured my business um, to really sort of center my employees first. Right, right, right. And, you know, when you opened Reams, you told the press that you had envisioned it as a community hub. And has your understanding of the role of the restaurant in politics and community changed since that time, and especially in the pandemic? <laughs> um, yes and no. I, I don't think it's changed per se. I think it's uh, it's gotten more and more clear. Um, I think Reams always sort of, when we opened Reams, or when I sort of envisioned Reams even 10 years ago, um, we weren't imagining just a restaurant, like the the sort of traditional form of a restaurant. And the more and more I got, the deeper I got into the food industry, I realized that it's very short-sighted. I wanted to ask you about how you express 
political ideas and political realities through food and and through the space that you have created and how you know have you been successful and what do you think helps in trying to discuss issues of maybe colonization apartheid you know um <laughs> all these things uh how do you express them through food and through a food space so I, I think that sort of how my food sort of intersects with these larger concepts of colonialism and apartheid, <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that that is a multi-layered question. Um, right. You know, I think that just inherently, like my food is political just by nature of being, uh, uh, it, you know, a generation of oppressed people who are fighting to, you know, just for their mere existence. And so food becomes sort of a, um, a marker of our existence, right. Our identity um, mm -hmm. in the midst of a myth that we never existed, right. As a people. Um, so the work that I do around my food is really as someone who is in exile, right. Like I, I'm in diaspora as a Palestinian and Syrian. And, um, you know, my role is to continue sort of the generations of storytelling. Um, many communities that come from struggle sort of use uh, food uh, and other sort of cultural um, traditions to be able to carry that story so that we don't forget. Um, mm -hmm. And but I think in particular being in diaspora in the U S which is the belly of the beast, as I would call it, mm -hmm. you know, the U S has been single-handedly um, responsible, if not aiding and abetting <laughs> um, other forces right. of colonial, you know, rule and extraction of resources from other communities. And so if we can change the world's view of people, you know, it's like a sort of organic consciousness raising, like food becomes this sort mm -hmm. of very visceral experience. It's like, in its purest form, you're like, if you create these conditions through, um, through food, you can break down at least some barriers to be able to have the hard conversations. And then hopefully the right. people who engage with, you know, my food, particular as an Arab in, in this country, <laughs> um, they could start to question, you know, what is, what is the role and what power do they have to hold their government responsible? Um, I don't think that I'm going to end apartheid <laughs> in Palestine okay. through my food or anything like that. But I think that, um, you know, that sort of deeper level of consciousness raising is important. I think the second part of my work, which is a little bit more indirect, is sort of the issue of food sovereignty. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Reams, you know, we sit in, in different neighborhoods in Oakland, uh, mostly Latinx communities, uh, black and brown communities. And we have a role we, it is it is important to intersect the struggle <laughs> um, that people are, um, you know, dealing with the forces of gentrification and being sort of uh, cut off from their food systems and what's, you know, what has helped them be resilient. And so Reem sort of, um, we think about sort of the connections between uh, our disconnection from our food with the disconnection mm -hmm. of other um, black and brown communities and so the intersection of struggle is really important for us um, and why we sort of uh, engage in questions of food sovereignty and um, how do we build resilience in communities and fight sort of <laughs> the right uh, 
the forces of disaster capitalism, so to speak. <laughs> yes. No, it, it's interesting because I was reading about the sort of controversy that emerged over the mural you have of, and I'm not sure I'm going to say her name correctly, but Razmi O'Day. Mm -hmm. And it, and so it's interesting to me because here in Puerto Rico, you know, people don't know about, well, Americans, you know, white Americans generally, mm -hmm. or most people from the America don't understand the situation with the United States. You know, they come here because they don't need a passport and because, you know, the money doesn't change and they don't, come here with any real understanding of the uh you know the the impact that the US occupation and colonization of the island has has had on how things are you know they'll make commentary about things kind of not working properly or not being available or maybe you know the government is corrupt <laughs> and it's like well do you understand how that circumstance came to be and like do you understand why local food is far far more expensive than imported food and also far less abundant like and all these things and I was thinking about how there's a, a bar down the street uh, from me called the mezzanine which is almost themed uh, as Pedro Albizu Campos who is a a like very big force uh, in for Puerto Rican independence and you know the there's like bullet holes there from the FBI shooting up the bar but i don't think that anyone makes any connections no. about i don't think like it's they go there and they have a drink and they look at the maybe they look at a newspaper article but i there's no real mm -hmm. you know um attempt to make this like real conversation happen and so i was so it was so interesting to read about what happened mm -hmm. in your restaurant because you know it, it just seemed like a different sort of um acceptance you know, that happens here and about mm -hmm. things or an erasure that happens here versus like the, that, that conversation kind of really coming alive and happening, which is something I would like to yeah. see, I guess, but uh, it, it was, it was interesting to see that. And, you know, there's so many, there's not so many, but there are parallels between, you know, the struggles. Um, Absolutely. That, you know, yeah, yeah. I think that the, my experience with the sort of political backlash of, um, you know, I had two ways I could have gone with that. One, I could have just tied away and been like, my food is for everybody and kind of taken that line. And like, this is just a community elder. But like, that would have been a little disingenuous. Um, right. I mean, those things are true, right? My food is we have an inclusive right. space. Uh, but uh, I think that I really pushed, uh, like by doubling down and saying like, I refuse to sort of hide parts of my identity made my food even mm -hmm. better and my space is even better because I think people are, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's, we're in a moment of history because this is not the first time this has happened. And, uh, you know, I think right. about resistance fighters like Nelson Mandela and now he has like the Nobel peace prize. Mm -hmm. Like who, who was the first person to put him up on a wall, you know? And like, right. same thing, you know, uh, I'm sure in Puerto Rico, like, you know, there are, um, you know, there are moments in history where you can kind of shift people's thinking. Um, but I think mm -hmm. here in the U.S., there is definitely, a, I call it like progressive, except for Palestine, the PEPs. Mm -hmm. And it's like yes. nobody's willing to touch that. Like, yes, OK, we'll help we'll help combat anti-Arab racism. You know, the Muslim ban is bad and all. But when it came to Palestine, um, people don't want to touch it. And so. I do think right. that I kind of play a role in that um, for better or for worse of, uh, of not like shying away um, from these things. But 
it is true. Like uh, Puerto Rico, and I don't, you know, I would, I'm like just so fascinated by the, the history there, but I think about, I mm-hmm. often think about it as a parallel uh, with the situation mm-hmm. um, with the occupation um, of Palestinians because, you know, we're, it's like 70 years now. Um, so it's like new, right? And like, right, what, right. you know, the occupation of Puerto Rico, it's like a, over 100 years. Right, by the US, US and then right? before that, Spain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like the normalization of right. occupation is a scary thing. That is almost the most, uh, that's the hardest to fight. And the mm-hmm. state of Israel, you know, the government, uh, they put thousands, I mean, millions of dollars into um, marketing campaigns and even like gastro, gastro diplomacy is kind of their big quote unquote mm-hmm. thing. And it's like, oh, wow, they're putting all this money and they're like, they understand food is a way to like pacify people, you know, and normalize it. And like, look, we're all this, you know, nice, you know, this is like a beautiful place to visit. And like, don't mind what we're doing, you know, farm to table. Like they do these farm to table programs and like right next door, they're like raising farms and kicking people off land that have been connected to that land for hundreds of years, you know? And so the true contradictions, like they're putting millions of dollars to try to normalize. Um, And so I'm in the business of fighting that normalization. And I know that they're, and and just talking to, to activists on the ground in Puerto Rico, like, I think that that is a part of the work is like denormalizing you know, and right. and the other right. thing that I always see the parallel between um, is the is the like NGOization. <laughs> oh gosh, yes, <laughs> they have like squashed people's movements. You know, uh, for like mm-hmm. nonprofits, and like that is very apparent in the West Bank and Gaza. And like, but I am really inspired by people on the ground who are building their own cooperative movements, and you know, figuring out ways to work outside of the NGOs. Um, right you know, to do that work of denormalization. Like, this is not normal, (laughs) you know? No, it's so important to say that. But as you say that, it reminds me, you know, of this kind of also fetishization of Palestinian ingredients in the West that has happened, where, you know, it's like, oh, this Zatar is from a co-op in Palestine. You know, I have Zatar from a co-op in Palestine in my pantry. I love it. But at the same time, it's like, well, what does that mean really? And and what difference does that really make? And, you know, someone was saying to me, you know, oh, it's this, this olive oil is from a co-op in Palestine. You know, we talk, these are like really fetishized ingredients in food without real conversations there. And, you know, do you have, like, how do you feel about that? Or how do you, oh, yeah, man, you're going there. I love it. Um, I don't know. I always joke. I'm like, well, what a win is a win, right? Like if Whole Foods is selling, right. but you know, obviously the pessimist in me is like, oh, they're just doing this to avoid our conversation about deshelving um, from Israeli products. <laughs> they're like, here, right. here's a co-op <laughs> there. Like, don't bother us kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, so that's the pessimist side of me. Um, but yeah, I, I grapple with that. I grapple with that even in my own identity in this like age of the like celebrity chef of like, oh, she's Palestinian. And, you know, like it feels a little tokenizing. It's like, OK, but what are you going to okay. do about that? Are you going to like challenge, yeah. um, you know, the next time you see in the news about something, you know? So, um, right. yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's 
it's not to take away from the fact that um, these things are becoming more and more sort of, um, I wouldn't see, I wouldn't say mainstream, but at least sort of mm-hmm. knowledge, <laughs> um, you right. know, that's, that's different than it was 10 years ago when I was organizing. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a weird place to be in. Like how I'm just so used to being on the fringes <laughs> that when you, mm-hmm. yeah, like what is, what happens when it becomes sort of the hot thing? <laughs> Um, right. And yeah, that, I, that really bothers me in the food world. I feel like the food media, and I know this, you know, this is something that you talk about a lot is like, what does the food media have to do with this? And um, I think absolutely in the way they shape and frame the stories, like people just gravitate and repeat those frames in their heads. So um, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think about it as, you know, as as kind of in the same way as, you know, the media has said, oh, we have we are representative now and and we have diversity now because you put people in positions, you know, um, and yeah. And then but then you do nothing politically to or even in writing, you don't really take a political stand to say anything else, you know. And so, yeah, it's very complicated. and, And food has such a you know, big role to play in, you know, keeping people, as you said, from believing that occupation and colonization is yeah. normal. And I, I don't think that the food media necessarily yeah. is kind of holding up yeah. <laughs> any sort of end of that bargain. Yeah. You know, it, it likes to cover chefs like you, but I don't yeah. think it likes to take it any farther no, than that. No. Yeah. The, the sort of social justice. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I've sort of taken a break from like, I'm like, I just need to start my own sort of state of the dough or something, because (laughs) if somebody asks me again, how are we going to solve, you know, the issue of the restaurant industry? I'm just going to like, just go crazy, you know, because, yeah, they don't, I think, yeah, not dealing with the root causes is just like, you're just part of the problem. Like you're, you're asking Mm -hmm. the wrong questions (laughs) around what is to be done. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite frustrating because um, we don't have to tell you the answers. The answers are there. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And they're just not willing to touch it, I think, is the big thing. Like, let's, 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 um, I mean, you know, I was, I don't know how controversial I was, but like, I was like a good figure to cover for a few years. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but then when we actually go down and do the work, uh, that part is not covered. It's just like the sound lights. Right. Um, and I'm just tired of the sound bites, you know? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know if media, food media can change. It will change. Hopefully there's more folks like you who are like covering the real root cause. Um, but until that changes, I think that we, there has to be other ways that we, you know, there has to be other gatekeepers. <laughs> Right, um, right. <laughs> they are. Maybe we're our own gatekeepers, and we continue just to do the work. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think that, yeah, just like talking about the the ideas as like this, mm-hmm. almost you know, tokenizing. It takes away agency and power from the real work that we're doing, mm-hmm. and that is very frustrating. Um, yeah, I don't, right. I don't feel any more like I don't feel like I really accomplished my goals. Um, yes, I put, you know, like, yes, I got like a national platform to talk about these issues. And that is important to some extent. But mm-hmm. it also distracted me from the real work, you know, mm-hmm. that I was doing on right. the ground. Um, so 
for me, this pandemic has been a blessing in that way. Of like, mm. okay, great. There's like, Zatar is popular. Okay, what are we going to do about it? How do I like subversively use this Zatar to like take it a step further? And you know, the things that right. I'm most proud of is like when we got someone like Gabriella Hamilton to not take us Israeli sponsored trip, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, those right. are like the wins. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's going to take a while and it's going to take real organic conversations, but, um, you know, those are the things that are most rewarding for me is to connect with people on the mm-hmm. real, you know, the pop, I did mm-hmm. like these pop-ups in New York three, four years ago. And that I made so many comrades in the food world from those pop-ups mm-hmm. that are doing work around food sovereignty, you know, both here in the U S and, and in Puerto Rico um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and indigenous folks, you know, like that's a whole um you know, struggle right. that I'm only just surface level learning about and seeing the parallels. So yeah, that, that work is, it's going to take us, you know, it's going to take the the people who are most impacted. And that's kind of why we shifted gears at Reams. You know, obviously I was like on this path to this meteoric rise, right. As the media would say, and <laughs> I was like, I halted all of that. And I was like, we're going to switch to a worker owned cooperative. <laughs> You know, and you know, we're and that's not uh, that's easier said than done, but we're doing the work to get there. You know, so right now. Well, in "Let It Die," a short film by Tim Dewey, which kind of touches on all of these things that we're talking about. You know, he talks to you about the differences between incremental change and revolution, Mm -hmm. and you ended by saying we need to start from zero and that some people will have to give up their privilege in the restaurant industry, which seems connected to you saying, you know, you're going to go to that worker cooperative mm-hmm. model. So, you know, a lot of the conversation has been happening during the pa- pandemic about, you know, maybe not focusing on the chef, maybe talking to people mm-hmm. who work in the restaurant itself, mm-hmm. you know, what, what do you, what does that shift of power and privilege look like to you uh, when it comes to the restaurant industry? Yeah. Yeah, I think you said it so eloquently. I mean, I think I included myself in that. <laughs> right. We all have layers of power and like, what? Are, how are we going to use that power and share that power um, and give up some of that power in order so that we can all sort of step into our power? Use power right. maybe like six times there in that sentence. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I was like... Um, I was so we were we're doing like an apprenticeship program for our workers and we were doing like the pyramid of power yesterday um I was like demonstrating it to them and I was like what would happen if we just said you know what like you know while we're pressuring you to give up your power because we know that people in power don't give up their power freely uh, so there is Mm -hmm. organizing that needs to happen but while we're doing that what if we build our own system so we don't rely on you you know like, you know what? We're not going to like rely on your banking institution. You know what? You know, we're going to build our own healthcare systems. You know what? We're going to grow our own food. And I saw this like spark in my, um, uh, my team. Like there was like an aha moment of like, we don't have to, we have power on the bottom of this pyramid because we are the foundation of it. So let's, let's crumble mm-hmm. this thing. Let's turn it up on its head a little bit. Um, and you know, cut, cut off some of the lifelines a little bit. And so, um, you know, that work has to be done on the ground level. Um, but those of us who are sort of in that middle of that pyramid, we have a role to play to step aside to allow that work to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, um, like, I'm really hoping that the, 
you know, we're documenting everything that we're going through at Reams to, to go through this mm-hmm. transition so that people can imagine, you know, I think a lot of people in the food world, especially my own sort of um, colleagues in the industry might be curious about this model, might want out, like it's so burdensome, like this sort of pressures of capitalism is not healthy for anyone. <laughs> um, and so, but they might not know how to like wrap their brains around how to do it. And so we're doing a lot of work mm-hmm. to sort of document that process. It's a process, you know? And, right. you know, what I told my workers yesterday is like, just because we're pressuring, you know, those in power to give up their power, doesn't mean that we're not going to replicate the same things we see. <laughs> and so right. there's a lot of unlearning we have to do in this next year. If we're going to turn into a cooperative, we need to learn how to be with one another and to recognize even our own power and privilege within that space. And so, yeah, right. so a lot of work has to be done sort of on the ground level. Um, to unlearn, you know, the generations of internalized racism and all the things, <laughs> all the oppressions that people, you know, especially in the food world, you know, the food is like the the, the restaurant industry. I mean, the food system in general, um, right. you know, it's majority BIPOC folks. And, you know, it, we have internalized all these things. And so we have to like... Mm-hmm unpack that a little bit and explore it and figure out what is the new model. Um, That's just going to take time. And I thank Tunde every day. (laughs) I never believed in incremental change. So he put some words in my mouth just for the record. Right. I'm like, like, I don't think that I was Obama. No, (laughs) Um, I understood the contradictions of being a business owner. I'm trying to just like feed my family. I'm the primary breadwinner in my family. Right. You know, so I understood that was a means. I didn't think that the revolutionary work that I was doing um, sort of within the scope of my business was within the scope of my business. It was more the byproducts of right. my business that I do that work. Right. So just for the record, Sunday. But <laughs> I think that I did sort of play into the like I could do side by side. And I was like, actually, mm-hmm. no, we could be more revolutionary with our models and the economic system that we play in. And I have a role like I have knowledge (laughs) um i have experience i've seen models you know i have you know i have all these tools in my toolkit and i have all these relationships with different communities why don't i fast track this because i we always wanted to be worker owned at some point so Mm -hmm. all i did was fast track a vision that i already had (laughs) um (laughs) and so but that said like i am a little bit less wavering and if it doesn't work, you know, like I don't want to participate right. in the things that were detrimental to my community. And um, if the contradictions become too much, um, you know, I will exit. <laughs> um, right. And so that's something I'm grappling with personally. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I feel really inspired by uh, my team. Uh, they're primed for worker ownership. So that's good. You know, some places aren't. Um because of the structures right. they built. So everything that I built thus far sort of made it a little bit more fertile um, for this kind of transition. But transition is hard um, and it's a process. So I'm just trying to like be humble and like decenter myself in it all uh, as much mm-hmm. as I can, you know. Right. Well, uh, my normal final question is redundant here. And so I think I, I'm, I want to ask you a, about the phrase 
there's no ethical consumption under capitalism mm -hmm. because someone yesterday, you know, I, I wrote a piece about quote unquote ethical chocolate, you know, like very beginner's guide, yeah. just kind of reminding people that there are still so many labor issues happening in chocolate and, and you mm -hmm. know, that we could lose chocolate at any moment if a disease decides to attack the mm -hmm. one species that we that we consume. And, you know, so they were like, but there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. And, <laughs> and in in the case of regarding chocolate, you know, like chocolate made from cacao that children, you know, picked versus cacao made from chocolate that children did not pick that the the maker you know paid a fair price to directly to a farmer mm -hmm. like these are actual differences yeah. but also you know it is we're still stuck in a very bad yeah. structure and so i wanted to ask you know, what you thought of this phrase generally you know yeah these are like the frustrating like especially if that person hasn't worked in the industry it's like oh, exactly that's nice for you. what kind of privilege do you have to say that um yeah i was reading your peanut butter um Look, uh, <laughs> reminds me of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're trying to get by. We're trying to create our systems outside the system, and yeah, like there's, uh, there's always something. Like Reams, even in the when it turns into a cooperative, is all is gonna be. It's not immune from the forces of capitalism. We still gotta make a profit. Right. We still gotta, you know, people are not gonna be making a true. You know, the only way that that will happen is if like we overthrow capitalism, um, which is a goal. <laughs> and <laughs> on a dream world, we'd have reparations and we could build our new model from scratch. Um, but until we get those reparations and have an equal playing field, we got to figure out what's the path away from capitalism. How do we build resilience? And, you know, some of, some of that means trying to engage in more ethical ways of currency and, you know, uh, building mm -hmm. livelihoods for our people. So, yeah, I mean, that was the thing that I was struggling with in the conversation with Tunde. Um, it feels very similar. It's like, okay, well, then what do you right. suppose I do? Uh, <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure, you know, you deal with that as a writer. It's like, yeah, we have to figure out, uh, I know that capitalism is not good for my health. Um, right. And I'm trying as much to kind of build that, um, sphere of resilience for myself and um, my team at Reams, but it's not, it, it is a process. So, but yeah, I think what we're vouching for is like a complete overthrow of the system that at least we had in our little corner of the world. And hopefully mm -hmm. other people will catch on to that. And we see more worker ownership. We see food media actually talking to workers. We see them at the table dictating um, what are you know they know the solutions they're the ones who have the lived experience right mm -hmm. but it's it's crazy Alicia like the every time I get asked about these things I like even put people in touch with my employees and very rarely do they get mm -hmm. a call so we have a long wow. way to go yeah <laughs> well thank yeah. you so much for taking the time today for sure thank you for having